Welcome to Launch That Podcast. Who we got today sitting across from us? Fitzy! No, Michael. What's up? I mean, oh. Fitz. My, can we call That's you what Fitz? all my friends, all my good friends call me. Well, when your first name is Michael. Yeah. Everybody calls you by your first and last name right. or just your last name. Fitzpatrick, Fitz, Fitzy. Because there's a lot of Michaels. I was just trying to. I mean, everybody has a brother, a dad, an uncle. I mean, it's just. I'm trying to make it seem like you (laughs) flub names when it's like clearly me every single time. So I was like, no, it's not that. Well, I don't think your name's not Fitzy, obviously. It's Michael Fitz. Patrick. Fitzpatrick. Only because I, I heard it. him say it. See, I just, okay. it's not, it's I not know, inborn. It's when not he like said Fitzpatrick, I was like, oh, that's some common last name. I didn't realize it was his last name. All right, Whoa, moving on. Whoa, moving on. Okay. Moving on. I see you're double fisting today. What do you I got am. there? Steady. Water no, here, and coffee, now. water, coffee, water, coffee. Good combo. Yeah. Hydrate, crack out. Hydrate, crack out. I quit drinking coffee. I was told I needed to. No stimulants. It's I really don't think interesting. I would survive three boys without a lot, a lot. I have a coffee problem. I yeah. drink about six to ten shots of espresso. Wow, that's that commitment. sounds great. I think that's a beautiful it's thing. For me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You look You're great. tall. I don't party too, You're so it's right. my it's my vice. Yeah, I hear you. Do you balance it out with the regular shots of water? I try to. I, I was just on tour this summer and. Uh, my drummer, who's an ultra marathoner, um, wow. was on this kick of drinking a gallon of water a day. So I was doing that seems it with reasonable. Him. Yeah. Have you tried drinking a gallon of water? It's not as easy mm-hmm. as you think. Basically, you're peeing all day long. Yeah, you're going to the, the bathroom every 10 minutes. It's pretty annoying. It's yeah. a commitment. Yeah, it is. A marathoner, double marathoner. He's crazy. That guy will run like a 50 or 100 mile marathon. So he's always training on tour. He'll run 20 miles on average a day. Then him and I, we love to rock climb. That's indoor rock climbing. We sort of do that to keep our brains sane on the road. So he'll run, he'll go bouldering rock climbing with me, and then he'll play a show. I'm like, you're making us all look bad. How many times a day are you going to the bathroom with the six to eight shots of espresso? (laughs) I mean, you know, a couple, okay. couple. Just checking how much of a commitment that is I mean, for you. That's worth it, though. Yeah, yeah. And today on Launch Left, we talk about. Um, great. <laughs> we got that all. Great, we got that there, guys. She's the pun. We got that all up. Um, uh, wow, it's so good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Wow, you've made a quite, quite a few, and very loved records and recordings throughout your time here on the planet. What what was the reason? What was the impetus for deciding to go the route of music at all as a child or as a young adult? What what guided you there? I mean, I think for a lot of musicians it's not even a choice. It's just a necessity, you know? Wow. Um you used part of our tagline. Did I? Yes. Wow. <laughs> um awesome. <laughs> You know, it's just never, for me, I've always needed to be creative and I was always much to my parents' chagrin and driving them absolutely batshit crazy, was always singing, would never shut up. Um, Started out doing some musical theater and stuff like that when I was in uh, grade school and stuff like that. And then uh, I went to this uh, annoying private school in the valley here in L.A., and then they had just opened up uh, Los Angeles County High School for the Arts, which was the first public arts high school in all of L.A. 
<clears throat> and I applied there and I got in and that was great because that was, you know, half of your day was academics and the other half of the day was just doing your art. And I got into the music program, was in the choir, um, you know, and it's funny because I spent every day making music and I was singer, but I still even to this day don't see myself as a singer, even though I've made a career out of it. But when I was at that school, there was all these young kids that were amazing singers. I mean, you know, their balls had definitely dropped and they already had like a five o'clock shadow and they were singing like Luther Vandross. And I was just like <laughs> this skinny little white kid just with a cracking voice. And so I was very intimidated by all their skill. You know, they could do crazy runs. They could just really, really nail it. Um, so I sang in high school, but it wasn't until college that I really started, got into having my own bands and and doing that thing. But uh, to be succinct, I mean, for me, it's never been a choice. You know, I thought for a second, maybe I wanted to be in the mu movie business growing up in, in this town. So I worked as a PA on movies and stuff like that. And uh, I just came back to to music, you know. I made a, I went to film school up at CalArts. I made a senior thesis that took like six months to make and like fifteen thousand dollars to to shoot it. And then I got my first home digital recording system. I woke up in the morning, I made a beat, put some chords down, wrote some lyrics, sang a song, burnt a CD when you were still burning CDs. Got in my car, drove, press play, and I was just like, "That's it." Yeah, yeah. that for my ADD type of personality, yeah. that you know, like return rate is Instant much more. Yeah. yeah, or at least eight hours later gratification yeah. as opposed to a six-month journey and having to rely. I think it was also movie making. It's such a, a group community effort. You know, you need so many people to to make it happen. And uh, with music, I didn't need to wait for anybody. If I wanted to be creative in the moment, I would just wake up and make something. Yeah. Now, in, in the music that you're making, though, it's you have quite a big band, right? And so the collaboration aspect is totally necessary. Or do you do your own writing and bring it to the band? It kind of depends on everything. We have six people in the band and we've gone through different phases where a lot of it's collaboration. Some of it's an idea that gets started by one person and brought in. Um, but I've also found, you know, that six people in a room is a really difficult creative process, you know, because it's like wrangling cats, you know, mm -hmm. you know, pop music, popular music is, is simplicity, you know, it's, um, it's a real, you know, a lot of times when I'm writing songs, cause I also write for other people and produce other people's tracks and stuff. A lot of times what happens when you're writing a song and sitting in a room is you basically come up with the, some chords that move you and then you have maybe a little backbeat happening and that's it for like five, six hours in the studio. And all we're focused on is writing the best melody and lyric that means something and, and connects. And that's you know, kind of antithetical to the way that a band wants to, everybody wants to start playing and clouding the space up and taking up every polyrhythm there is, you know. But what you really need to write a great song is that simplicity, that open air. And then you find, for me at least, in terms of trying to write songs that are memorable, is you need that open air to really let 
the lyrics and the melody flourish, find your rhythms, what you're doing. And then everything comes around it to support that idea. Obviously, if you're doing more experimental music or things that aren't trying to adhere or not, or, or I'd say aspire to like one listen, just get stuck in your head in a kind of annoying way, which is my fascination, you know, that kind of music okay. is you need that space. And so it's difficult for six people to sit around a room and not do anything and, and show restraint, you know? So, mm -hmm. so no, no jam sessions for them. We've tried and we've come up with some ideas, but I find that it, it, it's a difficult process because it's kind of working backwards. Then you're trying to fit the lyric and melody into a tighter box, you know? So, you know, to me, what's been the greatest success is is pairing it down to a smaller grouping of people, write the song, and then everybody comes in, and then there's some experimentation, and then there's the recording and the creativity of creating. You know, I mean, there's no new chords to be written. They've all been written. There's only 12 notes in the Western scale. So, yeah. you know, it's really to me now about the the sonics and the... The, the choice of the color palette that you use to dress those chords changes, you know, because like I said, everything's already been, every chord has already been written. Most melodies now are pretty derivative of every other melody yeah. that's already been written. So it's like, what is that, that landscape? And I love that. What I've always loved about music from the get go is that it transcends language. Mm -hmm. You know, you can play three chords on a cool old synth, 80s synth or something, and it just takes you somewhere, right? And for me, I'm very visual and cinematic, and it creates a landscape and it emotes something. And yet there's no lyric or melody even mm -hmm. on the song. Right. You know, and to me, that's like this magic thing. I forget what famous philosopher said, all art aspires, I think it was Nietzsche maybe, all art aspires to the condition of music. Mm, that's beautiful. You know? And to me, I, I feel like you don't have to commit to a word on paper yet. You have this thing that's, that's almost leading me. When I find stumble on some chords that I like, and then you're sort of looping it back and it's taking me somewhere, I'm sure as for you, you know, I love that not a single word has been spoken and yet it's sort of giving me a compass of where the song wants to go. Right. It's telling me almost what it is. Right. Right. You know, and yeah. to me, that's. Is that your favorite part you think of, of music is, is the songwriting? Like, I know, you know, there's the live aspect, there's recording in the studio, there's songwriting. Do you have a favorite or is it all inclusive for you? I mean, they're so different. I, I love, I love creating. I love that moment. Look, songwriting is, is arduous and hard sometimes. Um, but when you're in that moment, when, things are flowing and the musical gods are, are yeah. in your favor Muses. that day. Yeah. And it just comes together magically, like yeah. in like five Such EV steps yeah. and you're writing with your band or another artist or something. And it's just flowing and you feel that and everybody's energy starts to like, nobody can sit down and everybody starts standing up and dancing to the beat or whatever. That to me is is like my crack. You know, it's it's my thing that I wish I could live in every day. And yet you're lucky if you get that one out of every yeah. 10, 20, 30 times, you know, the rest of the time you might have little moments of that. 
And then the rest of the time is that sort of like unearthing, excavating, tearing apart, putting back together. Putting in the work, yeah. doing the practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, done. Okay, you did it. You did it. You did it. (laughs) That's really all we needed. Thank you. Have a good day. Um, Now, uh, did you name the band? And if so, does your band resent being referred to as the tantrums? And is it their tantrums or is it your tantrum? What's happening? Who's happening? I did not name the band. My friend... Uh, when we were first coming up with the the original first iterations of songs, uh, throughout the name fits in the tantrums, and I hate naming bands. You know, uh, I've been in many bands prior to fits in the tantrums, and uh, I hate the process because it, nobody can agree. You go through things, then you finally find got, a good one, and then you Google it, it, and it's like, oh, there's four other bands with that name. I literally just got it. You just got it. She just got the name. I've heard of your name for so long and like heard your music because you've worked a lot with the Art of Elysium and I work Uh closely with them too. And I just got the meaning of the name. As you were talking, I was like, oh my gosh, I just got it. Fits and the tantrum, fits and tantrums. Well, that's like Flow Rider. I only figured out like a year and a a half ago that it was Florida. So I'm right there with you. And it's Low Rider, but Flow. Rider. Really? No. no. I don't think so. It's Florida. Just made that up. It's just I like Florida. double meanings. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I hate naming bands. A friend threw it out and I love the name. It kind of captured the, you know, because we really built our, our band's popularity on our live show, which is nonstop energy, jumping around, crazy. It's kind of a church of music. If you come to our shows, we don't really even let you stand still. You got to participate. You got to be the the seventh member of the band and uh, and get crazy with us. You weren't and, really thinking of longevity at that time when you decided to create your show like that, were you then? I mean, 10 years, 20 years down the line, how, how much jumping around are we going to be doing, Fitzy? Oh, well, trust me, so there's many, <laughs> there has been many a time where I'm like, why wasn't I just in a shoegazer band, just standing there, glum lot, just strumming a guitar? Because we've set that bar for ourselves at 150% energy level. And it doesn't matter where we are, whether we're on a tiny stage or we're playing, you know, a festival in front of 50,000 people. We put on the same show every time. And, uh, professionals it's exhausting yeah it's crazy physical um we've all had to over the years really learn that you can't party you can't go crazy on tour you it's really about 20 miles a day and then go mountain well at least he's keeping himself in tip uh, tip top shape but uh yeah it's you know it's taking care of our bodies and uh you know tantrums you know it's like i think they're you know they like the name, and it is definitely the question we get asked at almost every radio station. It's like, so who throws the biggest tantrums? And it's easy. It's Noel, so it's fine. That's and she knows it. Asked. Does Mick Jagger inspire you? Um, and the Rolling Stones, considering... It's okay. It's only on camera and audio. He's like, that's who's okay. That? Who's the, who's that's okay. You don't have to be a fan, but I mean, as, I was much in more terms of, of cardio, do they inspire you? In the words, they're pushing, you know, they're they're into their... Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, like, you know, they just played down the street from me. I could hear it at my house. Um, oh, yeah, they played there. 
you know, and uh, they're amazing, you know, and I saw them like 10, 15 years ago and he was still amazing then. And I just saw some friends Instagram posts of, of the concert a couple of weeks ago. And it's like, he is still going. We should all be so lucky to be able to shake our asses that well at that age. Amen. Um, now, uh, you, I have know nothing about your band. I like it. Um, except I've listened to the music, okay. but that's as okay. far as it goes. So each question that I'm asking, it's not because... I don't know. Here's just because I'm curious. Here's the next one. Oh, thanks. Um, uh, Noelle. She's the only female in the band. She is. And where did you guys meet? And how did, like, the band come together in the first place? The band, uh, I started, I was working, actually, with our common friend, Mickey P. We uh, Hey, Mickey. Shout out to Mickey P. What's up? He did, like, you know, Midnight Vultures, Beckrack, Breck. Beck's record and a lot of um, Flight of the Concord stuff. And I, you know, I had been working with him for a while. And then I started, you know, I just couldn't let this idea of being in a band go. I, I guess I'll back up a little further. You know, through my whole entire 20s, I had a long laundry list of, of bands in L.A., couldn't get arrested in music, could never get even a single A&R person to come to my show. It was like every month when I play a show, begging my 30 friends, guilt tripping them to come <laughs> see the show, doing pay to play at the friggin' whiskey, you know, just grinding, couldn't get arrested, couldn't get anyone to pay attention. Finally wrote one song that was like, Sounded like a hit song. Let's just oh, put can it that I just way. interject really quick? Yes. When you wrote that song, did you have that sort of feeling that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The song came together quickly, and it was. It just sounded like a song, as they say, a one listen song. You right. know it before the song's even over. And uh, finally, this one guy said, hey, I'll manage you. Nobody had ever done that. And he went and shopped it around. We were literally a band that was like three months old. And we proceeded to do 10 or 11 showcases right down, right below us at SIR, mm -hmm. where we did 10 showcases for 10 labels in a private viewing room, private stage, right? With two guys in suits sitting on a desk, uh, you know, on a couch looking at us. 10 performances, 10 no's, 10, he's too old. And I was 28 or 29 at the time. And I was heartbroken. I was just like, I, you know, this is already almost 10 years of trying to do this. I need to broaden my horizons. I can't keep out going to my parents every six months and begging them for, you know, 1500 bucks to cover next month's rent. And um, so I called Mickey P every day for a year and said, hey, man, I know you're producing. Let me come over and work. He'd be like, yeah, yeah, maybe call me next week. And I literally called him once a week, every week for a year straight. And I think finally after a year of calling him, one day he was like, fine, just come over, but please just stop calling me. <laughs> and I had been a self-taught engineer making my own songs with my own little computer at home. And had become by that time pretty 
pretty good because I had always had to self-produce everything, do everything myself. So when I walked in and he was working on some kid's record, I sat down at the computer and I was just very fast and very proficient. And he was like, oh, you, you, you can stay. And so I worked with him for a few years and then we started getting calls to write uh, music for film and television and commercials and stuff like that. They wanted music that sounded current and relevant that was made by artists. And so I said to him, I said, oh, I, I don't want to sit in a blacked out room for 12 hours a day working on a record that I don't really care about. It was almost too painful for me to watch other artists go make their records. I said, let me run with this thing. And so for like seven or eight years, Mickey and I had a company where we did music for film, television, and commercials and stuff. And it was the first time that I had any success ever in my entire life in the music world. And um, trust me, my parents were extremely happy. Um, and uh, so I was doing that, but it was kind of soulless at the same time. You know, it's hard to get excited about, you know, Writing jingle. a jingle for a dog food commercial, you know, um, you know, after the initial like, yeah, I'm making me uh, money, making music, it kind of wore off. And then it was like, well, I don't even believe in advertising as a human. So now I'm just completely selling my soul, you know, writing these jingles and stuff. And uh, so I would always still try and be writing music. And I procured this old vintage organ off the side of the road. And I had one of those musical God moments where I wrote a song from start to finish in five minutes. Best. And that was yeah. the first song for Fits in the Tantrums called Breaking the Chains of Love, which was very sort of uh, Northern soul, 60s soul, blue-eyed soul kind of vibe. And uh, I played it for some people. And everybody, all my peers, all my harshest critics were like, this is your thing. I've never sound, I've never heard you sound more authentic, M write better songs. This is your moment. And so I started working with my college buddy, a uh, guy by the name of James King, who plays saxophone for the band. I know James. And James and I started, you know, working okay. on some of those early songs. And I just said, you know, this, uh, this music's begging to be played live. And I said, but I want an amazing female singer to be on this. And he had just worked with Noel doing like a De La Soul tour or I forget, some some hip hop band in that vein. And he said, oh, well, you got to call Noel. And, you know, like I said, I had tried for so many years to be in the music business. And it just my whole entire life felt like I was trying to take a square peg and put it through a round hole with a sledgehammer, just beating the shit out of it, trying to get it through there, just being stuck with, you know, splinters in my face and could never make it happen. And from the outset of this band, there was just this, this flow that happened mm -hmm. where I had that first song kind of came to me, worked very easily with James, said, let's put a band together. It was literally five phone calls, Noel being one of them. We all got in a room a week and a half later. We played, and this is to these guys' credit, they're amazing musicians. You know, they spent their whole life putting in their Malcolm Gladwellian 10,000 hours of, of, of work to be really good at what they do. So, and they're professionals, you know, they had listened to the music. We walked in, we played that first song, Breaking the Chains, 
of love one time. And it sounded like the record. It sounded like we've been playing forever. And Noel and I were facing each other. Our voices blended. And I will play that one song. I walked out of the room and I called uh, this guy that was booking at the Hotel Cafe right mm-hmm. down there from yeah. where we can see and booked us our first show. And I came back in and I said, guys, we're going to play a show next week. And they're like, we've played one song. <laughs> and I was like, it's happening. And we went and played that show. And, you know, like I said, everything felt difficult and challenging before this band. And it was like, we played six or seven shows. And then Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, Flogging Molly, Maroon 5, all asked us to go out on tour with them. Wow. Um, the the universe just felt like it shifted. Nothing was difficult. Um, and so then we went out for the next two years and just toured our asses off. The great thing about getting a tour like, yeah, Maroon 5 wants you to open up for it. It's like, oh my God, high fives all around. And it's like, oh wait, we, we're not signed. We don't have anything. It's going to cost us $25,000 yeah, to tour with these guys. Yeah. Now I had been quite successful with Mickey having that company and I had actually had a savings account. And this was right at the time that the uh, economic crisis happened. 2009. Yeah, something like that. Exactly. Where the bottom dropped out. All the advertisers weren't spending money making new um, new commercials and stuff like that. And yet there was this moment presenting itself to us where it was like the universe is saying yes. Um, So I took my entire life savings. All the guys in the band took next to nothing to get paid. And we went out and we just toured for two years um, till we finally landed at South by Southwest on the short list. Everyone's, you know, Vanity Fair, Rolling Stones, everybody's list of 10 bands you had to see that year at South by Southwest. And KCRW, our beloved station here, had their own showcase and we got the coveted headline spot on their showcase we go on stage. We've already played like six times at South by Southwest. We're exhausted. We get on stage and every president from every label is standing there in the audience. And we start playing. And by the second song, I just saw one by one. They all just walked out of the venue and left. And I, as we're performing, I'm just dying on the inside. I'm like, I know this feeling. I know this, this moment. This is... Flashback to the SIR. You know, just like one more friggin' time. This is going to be the way it's going to be. No respect. Nobody's going to give me a chance. And we were all, at the time we were represented by Danger Bird Records, which used to be in Silver Lake for music licensing, where they were trying to get placements for our our songs and movies and stuff like that. And they had a showcase over at uh, Mellow Johnny's, which is a bike shop there. And it was eight bands signed to Danger Bird and us. Um, and we went on stage and not to be cocky, but we blew everyone else away. You know, we just brought it. We had so much high energy. The crowd went crazy. And the wife of the president of the label leaned over and said, you'd be a friggin' idiot not to sign these guys. And we didn't know that. We didn't hear that part of the conversation. We got onto the plane, broke, knowing, okay, we're going to go back to LA and we're going to disband 
because I don't have any more money to float the band. Everybody's been making almost nothing. Where I'm about to default on my on my mortgage. Everything's over. And we got back and I got a call from the president saying, come have lunch with me. And we got our first record uh, deal, you know, and we've had these magical moments that have happened. Right. But at the same time, nobody's given us anything. We have. We're, you know, we're almost at 11 years of being a band together and we have worked our asses off for 11 years to get where we are. Nobody just gave us carte blanche for anything. We had to claw our way. We did every small, big, medium performance, every interview from a high school newspaper to the New York Times. You know, we just did everything and I have always done it, trying to keep going to get to that place. And that was an extremely long answer. But. It's a really common, I think, for... It's good for artists to hear about the toil, you know, um, and it's common. But, I, I, yeah, I'm really interested in in the part where there was... It was like you were pushing against the universe for so long while believing what you were doing was exactly what you should have been doing. And then this moment where the the right combination of people and the right time and you know came together and it just flowed like that to me is always really something to look for as an artist is like to be open to the fact that what you think is your way through or what you think is gonna where you're supposed to be in life and what you know why don't people like me now when I just to more be looking for that that flow because when you're in that flow that you spoke about when you found the right band and it was like oh everything moved very easily there was no, there was less toil. Like that's sort of like the signpost, you know, that, but we so lack the, the, often the ability to, in, to follow our intuition, to just, to drop something. We get so attached to like, no, this is what I'm doing. I can't change no, my course. Uh, right. And when you do sometimes is when everything opens up. And that's what I've found over many years is like, when I stop thinking, I know, what I should be doing, you know, and just keep looking until the flow happens. That's when it feels the most nourishing because it's also super authentic. There's not this like, I'm trying to, like you said, beat a square peg in a round hole. You're open to the flow of your own creative and it's matching with the universe flow. And it just all starts to snowball in that really organic, authentic way. And there's something super that's like writing a song. It's the same energy to me as when you write a song in five minutes, it's like, Oh, this is what this is about. Like, it's not about me. It's like, I'm just supposed to be in this spot right now. And this is the spot that's moving. You know what I mean? Like, but could energy. you pinpoint what precipitated that sort that the beginning of that flow personally? Was, was there something? I mean, I think part of it was, you know, I also wasn't as good of a songwriter early on. And when I'm honest and I listen back to that, those early iterations of the 10 bands I was in before Fits and the Tantrums, they all kind of sucked. They weren't very good. You know, I mean, writing a song is very difficult, you know, and there are those people that just have this innate ability. You know, I work with songwriters all the time that I despise in a certain way because it's not a learned thing. Can you name them here on the stage? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's not a learned 
practice. It's just something they have within them that just flows with them, whether they have this lyrical prowess or they just have the ability to hear a melody over any chord progression. And I have some of those qualities, but I would say that I've also been a person that has dedicated myself to to learning and to bettering myself and to to improving with the practice. Um, I would say the other part of that is that I feel like a lot of my early bands were, you know, part of the thing of being a singer, especially when you've been a lifelong singer, is I can sing in many different styles. And so the larger question becomes, well, what is you? What is the authentic mm-hmm. voice that you sing in? Mm-hmm. You know, where you 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 no longer imit- are in any form of imitation, but you're in your own true expression. And I think that a lot of those bands had a derivative quality to them. Not that, you know, our band didn't have like influences and fits in the tantrums, but I would say for me personally, my voice vocally, that was when I stopped, you know, I'm, I'm a crooner, I'm a singer, uh, I'm not a growler, you know, you know, during all, all that nineties stuff, you know, you know, or the screamo or all that stuff. I, those are not the way I sing, you know, right, right. I don't sing like. Screamo, I don't sing like Eddie Vedder. I don't sing all those styles. And yet I was trying to imitate all those kinds of music growing up and they weren't me. And what the, the sole aspect of the music just really fit my voice Mm -hmm. and felt like I wasn't straining at all to be anything but myself. And I think that was part of the thing. You know, and my drummer, he has this this idea. It's like, if you stay in line and keep working, your turn will come. If you get out of line, you lose your chance. But if you stay in and you keep working and persisting, that moment will come. And I, that's one of the things I love about the band is that everybody in our band has worked their butts off one or two people had little moments of success, but most of everybody in the band never really got their due. And us collectively together, we've all gone further than any of us thought we could ever go with a band. And, so you know, cool. being able to tour, play in front of thousands of fans, have people actually care about what you're doing as an artist, you know. Um, and I love that that part of it is that collectively the six of us sort of got to finally have our moment in the sun. That's cool. Do you, do you have a, we like to ask three questions of everyone on the show. I like it. Um, um, one of them is your greatest influences. Like who, who, you know, who you like, who, who inspired you to even want to do music when you were a kid? Like what records, seminal records. I have one question off the three question thing for a little bit later. Okay, go ahead. Um, I mean, I am a, you know, I grew up in a house where my dad was uh, an opera Nazi and classical music. So, but he likes to listen to it at 11. You know, it's like blaring opera, (laughs) which makes for, you know, I mean, operas are dramatic. Yeah. Dramatic or dramatic? Dramatic. Mm. 
You know, so, and when you listen to them where your neighbors actually are calling and telling us to turn down the opera, it makes for a very intense household where every action, even going and getting a bowl of cereal seems very, very cinematic. Consequential. Exactly, consequential. (laughs) So I grew up with opera and classical music. And for me, the only outlet I had was in my room or driving on the way to, to school um, I was, I'd say my biggest influences are soul music because that was kind of the first station that I found on the radio that my mom would actually like agree to listen to. <clears throat> I love those 60s soul records because yeah. they're so melodic, taught me so much about melody, even the production I'm still obsessed with to, th- to this day. And they always had back, uh, background singers, backup parts, so you could mm-hmm. be a part of the band singing in the car. Mm-hmm. And then 80s music, you know, I would say that's maybe my biggest influence of all. I'm a full new wave, new romantic to the bone, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I was deeply into all that British invasion from the 80s. That's maybe my biggest musical influence, but I love dance music. I love electronic music. I went through a three-year phase where I didn't listen to anything, but each one of the Led Zeppelin records by itself for like six months and then mm-hmm. moved on to album two. And mm-hmm. You put in your 10,000 hours. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and I think this day and age, and that's why I love this day and age too, is that people are, very seldomly are people genre-specific anymore mm-hmm. in in the way they listen to music. People have a very diverse portfolio of albums, mm-hmm. you know, that they, that they pull from. Ears. Yes. Yeah. Cool. What's your question? Weird hybrids, you know? What was oh, the one? my question, Shiza. Oh, yeah. Um, just to your point about, you know, you were saying like in recognition of your, or an acknowledgement is that you didn't really feel that you were ever really in a good band up until Fits in the Tantrums looking back, right? And, but then also you were talking about individual authenticity and sort of finding your voice later on in life. I was, I don't know why, but I just wondered if, if that speaks at all to an idea that in fact you don't find yourself, but you create yourself. And that you become yourself and you did at the juncture about like trying to clue in like the flow and all of that, that at that point in your life, through all that you did is that you became Michael Fitzpatrick of Fitz and the Tantrums. Or do you feel that 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 kid who was crooning, you know, was always in there waiting and waiting for his due or if he became. No, I think it's becoming, you know, I think, uh, I think obviously there's a journey as an artist, but there's a, a, a journey as just a human, which is that like, you can spend so much of your life trying to will things to be. And, it doesn't necessarily, I don't know why it's making me very emotional to even say that. I think I spent so much of my life trying to force it to happen. And it just wasn't the thing, you know? And 
I let the the world influence me, whether it was when I was 28 and everyone said I was already too old. And I then I was became, had this like ticking clock obsession that would not leave me where I'm like, it has to happen now. I would be sitting there on a Sunday night at 10 o'clock just being like, how can I will this to be? Mm-hmm. Just with clenched fucking fists, mm-hmm. just like squeezing them as hard as I can. And that's not... That's not the way it works. That's not life. That's, and it, I would say that's not a, a, a peaceful existence. Yeah. What is it? I think David Lynch says negativity is the, um, negativity is the something of creative, is the enemy of creativity. Negativity is the enemy of creativity. So that kind of like bearing down on it has to happen. That That's mostly like, and you know you're like negatively going it's not happening you're in the lack of it you're not in the like where where am i supposed to be universe put me there yeah like and, and, and you know and it's it's a it's a a life lesson that i have to be reminded of maybe every other hour yeah what's my next question you know <laughs> it's you know yeah. it's it happens to me even now you know i you know this idea of acceptance too. It's like whatever is happening in your life, career-wise, personal-wise, you know, acceptance. Either I can be in acceptance of whatever the thing is and hopefully find some serenity in my day. Or I can not be in acceptance of it and be agitated, irritable, and discontented. You know, Mm -hmm. I can be frustrated. I can be, you know, and I've been able to use that in certain categories of my life. And then I'm like, well, it applies to everything. So why why am I not doing it over here in this category and this category? But it's, it's not a natural state of mind. It's one that I have had to many times, several times, sometimes uh, a lot of times, even within one day, which is just park the car for two seconds or as I'm getting into my car or whatever is to close my eyes and take a deep breath and remind myself of, of that idea of Mm -hmm. to be an acceptance Mm -hmm. of a person, a place or a thing. It's whatever it is. Cause when I live in that and I believe in that, I just have, so much more freedom mm-hmm. and breath in my lungs mm-hmm. wow, than, beautiful. than than the opposite way. Yeah. And I use, you know, and I deal with that, you know, I mean, I'm in a wildly successful band and this, uh, I guess this was the other, you know, this is a, a sort of an offshoot, but you know, it's like, It'll never be enough. You know, for the longest time, all I wanted was somebody to pay attention to my music. Then I got people paying attention. Then it's like, well, all I want is just an indie record deal. I got the indie record deal. Then it's like, well, I want to play in front of 2,000 people. Well, then I got that. All I want to do is be on, you know, David Letterman, Jimmy Kimmel. I got that, you know. And I just, for the, I would say maybe the first five years of the band, I would set a marker. I would get there. It wouldn't make me feel any better, any different. I would set the bar higher. You know, I want a major record deal. I want to sell a million records, whatever the thing is. And I just kept doing that. And five years into the band, I was like, why am I not happy? I'm like miserable right now. And it's because I'm like in this destination and not the journey. 
I'm always looking ahead, always setting that that marker further down the line. And it, it it's 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 not the thing, you know. It's not going to make me any any happier. And the biggest sort of spiritual challenge for me, having had this dream for so long, you know, and only coming into it in my late 30s, was that, like, I finally got the dream. And it wasn't like a modified version of the dream, like writing jingles or whatever. It was my exact friggin' dream came true. Right. Everything I wanted came true. And yet I was the most unhappy I had ever been in my entire life. And that was like this wildly scary moment where it's like, okay, well, I've been, this has been my purpose. This has been mm-hmm. my meaning. This has been my compass. And it didn't fix me. It didn't make me feel any better. I feel more isolated and alone, you know, than I ever have, you know, with people just wanting to do selfies and being out on the road by myself and disconnected from my friends and my family and stuff. It was a very interesting place where I had to sort of be like, okay, well, look, I'm grateful for the success. I'm grateful for the all of it, but it's not, it's not the thing. Mm. What was the thing? Yeah, talk Did you us find through. It? Talk us through the the like the. It sounds to me that you had to let go in a certain way, right? Right? Isn't that what acceptance is in a yeah. certain way? Is like letting go of the outcome. You, in fact, got the outcome that you had dreamed of and worked very hard for, but you found when you got there that it didn't fulfill you. So, what were the which steps? is an interesting thing because you know I have friends that have been, have had similar experiences and they can speak to it, and then I have other friends that are still reaching mm-hmm. for that dream mm-hmm. and. You know, it's a tricky thing because they don't want to hear that. Mm -hmm. They don't want to hear, oh, it's not going to fix you. And I'm like, you know, everybody has their journey. Maybe other people, it did everything they wanted and they're stoked on life, you know. But for me, I found a massive emptiness, which was that I had kind of subjugated my real purpose in life. Yeah. To this, yeah, to this mission, to this That's what dream. I want to get to. Yeah. That's because that's what would be my next question or just a statement around, you know, do you think it has something to do with one's motivation? Like if, if your motivation includes a, a more than just your dream, right? But something deeper and something more meaningful, something that um, includes everyone else in, as, in an aspirational sense, right? Do you think that that changes the outcome when it happens from one that feels lonely and, and um, isolated to one that is like, oh, we're doing it? Even if there's no one else involved and you're doing a solo record, on your, you know, but what the aspiration being there that like, not just for me and not just for my dream, but, but may this be a cause of, you know, benefit for, for everyone that touches this project or is a part of it, that when you include some kind of like uh, practice with it, which it sounds like wh- what you were talking about when you take a moment in the car and just take a deep breath and remind yourself of like, oh, right. It's, you know, the slog and the obvious got to get isn't the point. Like it's the me inside there, that consciousness. It's it's the person that gets that all of this does have meaning and the meaning isn't the external. It's like, what is it feeding my, how is it feeding my soul and how is it helping in a way? How is it helping the world? Like, do you, do you agree that having 
maybe a practice or, or is that where you're going with this? Like, cause basically my last question and then we started talking about something else was like, okay, how, what, what did do it? Right. You said you were miserable at the highest time in your life in success grade or, or, you know, I think, I mean, for me, it was, uh, meeting my wife and starting a family, you know, um, five years into this band, I was, living every dream I wanted, but I was totally disconnected from all my friends and family because in order to achieve that success and to do what it takes to be living that moment of success in a, in a band that's having a moment is that you're traveling 24 yeah. seven. You're gone. You know, I mean, there was years where I was gone six to nine months out of the year yeah. and my life is just this weird nomadic lifestyle where the bus pulls up to whatever city in America at 9am. We all fall out of the bus. We find a cup of coffee. We, you know, eat lunch. We maybe try and do some something related to the city, but a lot of times the venues in some weird part of town, like some industrial yeah. part, you know, the bus parks, the bus driver goes to bed. You don't have a car. You don't have a bicycle. You don't have anything. You know, you play a show in front of screaming fans going crazy, you know, and then an hour and a half later, you're walking through an empty venue with just nothing but, you know, red solo cups, you know, littering the the ground and the stench of like spear, a spilled beer. And it's a very disconnected, really, it's yeah. really highs and then yeah. extreme weird yeah. esoteric loneliness um, and just no connection. I'm a uh, cancer. I'm a creature of habit. I'm a homebody. So for me to be in this career is already like kind of opposite of what my true nature is, which is I just like to nest. I like to go to the same coffee shop every day, order the same thing, be known. They know my, they have my drink right when I walk in, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, being out there is just a very surreal thing where there was more than one time where we would just be driving in a van from the airplane or something to the locate to the venue. And I would be looking out at a city skyline and I'd be like, I actually don't know where I am today, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you usually know where you are unless you've blacked out or something, right. but you know, to be sober and looking out the window and not know where you are. And because it literally every day is like that, you're in a city for 16 hours and then you're driving to the next city. There's no permanence. You're the yeah. transient element in this venue's life where the local right. crew, the local coffee shop, it's permanent. Yeah. And you're just this transient element. And every city's different. So would you say that like you're meeting your wife and having a family created a kind of stability that even now when you're on the road, you have this home you can go home to? Even? Yeah, it gives, yeah. Me, it gives me purpose. And yeah. being a... Uh, Purpose in service to others as well, yeah. as yeah. opposed to just yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, anybody that's a parent knows that. And this, for me personally, was one of the blessings of being a becoming a parent was that I no longer had the the time or the privilege to be completely self obsessed. Mm -hmm. The there's these little humanoids. You're trying to 
bring up conscious human beings in the world, but they don't give a shit. They just want what they want. They're so primal, especially boys. They're just like, they want what they want. They want their snack now. They want to do this now. They're very, you know, they're very present. They're not thinking about anything but what's right in front of them. They were your mirrors, man. Oh, and they are your mirrors. You know, it's like my wife and I just had this massive come to Jesus moment. We just had our third child. We have two dogs. One's a puppy, you know, like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we just renovated our whole backyard, built a pool. I mean, it's like we couldn't have piled more crap on top of a crap on crap. (laughs) The baby was born when I was on tour in in Korea, came home for eight days, saw the baby for eight days. And then I left for six weeks, uh, no, eight weeks this summer for tour and left my wife to fend with these kids. Yeah, I can, you know, the, the arduous journey that she was, that she went through, but you know, we've, we don't create simple children. They're very intense. They're hot. They're intelligent. They're engaged. They're demanding. And we literally three nights ago had this come to Jesus moment where we just were like, we are failing as parents right now. (laughs) We are just angry. (laughs) We're just frustrated. We're turning on each other. I'm like, I'm not even sure I like my kids right now. (laughs) And we just were talking it out at the end of the night with these two children that had just gone to bed and the baby sleeping in the rocker next to us. And we're just talking it out and it's like, oh, this comes down to control. We're trying to control these, these humans. And it's not an inanimate object. They're people. And either we can see who they are, nurture who they are, respect who they are, or we can just try and subjugate them to our will. And Lord knows we tried (laughs) and it failed miserably culminating with like all of a sudden we're the family that's yelling and frustrated and angry. And we just had to take this step back. And I, I don't even know why I didn't realize, but I'm like, this is control. It's the same lesson you were just talking about. Yeah, exactly. Holding your fist, not accepting, not being in acceptance of who they are. Letting go. And the craziest thing is, from one day to the next day, it was like night and day. Wow. How and powerful. those children did not do anything different. different. No, it's just your perspective. But we have totally changed our perspective. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're still early on, uh, you know, in this new new uh, practice. Well, thank God, because it's ever-changing, right? And that's the thing. It's like, just like they're not inanimate objects, they will change and grow, and their needs and their feelings and their thoughts will evolve and change, and we have to be, like, malleable and willing to hold all those That's a big deal, though. That that huge night to day thing. Yeah, that's beautiful. Like and, that's and really there you powerful. Because uh, I'm not even realizing you guys like that's what you were just talking about. Yeah. Fitz. I'm like, oh right. It's like how dumb can I be? It's not dumb, but you know, it's like how can you see it so clearly over here and forget to apply it over here? Because you're in it, right? Yeah, yeah. it's really dumb- and it's habit. It really, if you think about it, you the process you know, is to rehabituate yourself to new behaviors. And that's the training. That's like your own personal, like that's the mind training, or that's like what each individual has the opportunity to retrain their habitual 
way of doing things when it's not working, when they keep coming up against it. Why does the same thing happen to me? Why can't I get this? Why can't it's like, Oh, it's because that's my perspective on this, my lens. So the opportunity is there for each of us, I think. And I really love how you articulated it both in music and in home life is like, we all have this opportunity to change the way we we come at anything and we, and that requires so much practice. It's a constant rehabituation. If you're comfortable the way you have always been, it's really hard to turn it around 360 and like take Even a deep if you're breath, not comfortable, you know? if it's living hell and misery, it's still, it's, it's familiar. And yeah. so you tend to stick in it or sit in that muck as opposed to reaching out to whatever's unknown, because that's scarier than like sitting in your, yeah. Absolutely. It's a big, it's a big thing to do. And that I, I have felt very revel, revelatory about what your come to Jesus with your wife. I feel like that's huge when you have those like benchmark moments and two people come together with them and they understand the same thing and they make a choice that the next day they wake up differently around it. It's like, it can change your whole landscape and staying with it is again, the hardest part, right? Maintaining, yeah. maintaining that habit to not want but, to control. But it's almost like once you lift the veil and you have that consciousness, I don't know. I'm a person that once I have a realiza- realization, it's not like I can ignore it any longer or yeah. forget it. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, I've got the the memory of an elephant, like That's nothing good. escapes. And so it's like, if Me, I'm not going to be, fish. you elephant, uh, if I, if I don't, if I'm not living in that, then, then now I, I know the deal. Cause I know I wasn't looking at it as like, I'm trying to control these little human beings. And once I saw that, I was like, right. Why don't I just, appreciate that my son is like wicked smart you know and and just like you know i mean we have to put a cap on how many questions he can ask a day because (laughs) it's just and they're not easy they're like theological questions and he's five and a half you know almost not even six yet and it's like god jesus why do you know why do some people what's up with homelessness you know i'm just like i'm like here's a shiny thing over here. Just look at it, you know, but it's not simple. You know, he's a highly engaged person and I'd rather have that kind of kid, you know, than. but it comes with a, responsibility, a, a responsibility yeah. and a, it takes a lot of work. Yeah. Effort. Yeah. So well, you know what? We should continue our, our questions, oh, yes. our rapid fire. Cause we are fast approaching um, been the so next interview. To talk to you. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the one thing, uh, what was the second thing? It has to do with music too. Oh, oh no. First thing we're going to ask the... Um, what do you champion, yes. right? I mean, we talk about uh, stacking kindness upon kindness and activism as artists. And um, is there a certain cause, even if, I mean, often our, many people have answered like, you know, a smile to a stranger or uh, just being kind is one thing, but is there a form of activism or a certain something that you champion um, in this, in this climate? Yeah. I mean, I think for, obviously we live in, in very peculiar times um, right now. Um and I think uh, for us, I, I don't think I was really fully comprehending it, but 
our new record is very, it just, ha- there's a lot of positivity in a lot of the songs. Um, What's the name of the record? The The new record is called All the Fields, but you know, it, it great title. It's very, you know, we have a song that's called I Need Help. And it's, you know, especially as a man, you know, and if you were raised in a family like I did by like stoic. Opera listening, this goes to 11. Yeah. People, then you're not, uh, you haven't been taught as a human being to ask for help mm-hmm. or to lean on people. And I think in general, as human beings, we all have this sort of self-sufficient, self-reliant uh, mentality that, uh, you know, as soon as you uh, let go of that idea and can lean on people, there's there's just a lot of relief that can come from from asking for that help. And so, there's a lot of messages on this record that I think you know we've never been the coolest band, the hippest band, but we've brought joy uh, with our music, you know. And I think sometimes as artists, it's uh, easy to forget that, you know, or get focused too uh, too much on just the music and the business or whatever, or where we are, or do, do we have a hit song? Do we not? Is it on the radio? Is it not? You know, which look, I'm, I'm guilty of, of falling prey to that stuff. Like, like anybody else that's has ambition because I'm fucking ambitious, but the thing that really brings it back is when we, and one of the reasons why I love touring is we get to connect with people and see what the music means. Yeah. You know, you write a song in your in your little studio. I have a little home studio. It's basically I converted my garage. You know, you write a little song there and then you're fortunate enough to put it out in the world and you're in a position where more than 10 people are going to hear it even. But but hey, even the 10 people, it, it, it makes an impact. Yeah. And so we've had these, opportun- these experiences on the road where somebody will stop us and tell us what this song or the album meant to them, what it affected. You know, um, like a, a year ago, we were on, out on tour and uh, we got a letter from this family that said our daughter was, uh, had been very ill, was in the hospital. They didn't know if she was going to make it. And one of our songs, this song that kind of took us to this other whole level of success was this song called Hand Clap. And they said this was this was her anthem. Her anthem. Wow. To to go through this very scary time. And it was the whole family's sort of song. And they said, can can we meet you guys when you guys come? I forget. I believe it was in Texas. And we said, yeah. And, you know, it's just like it's making every hair on my body stand up because especially as a parent, it's like these these people came and this little girl was so happy. Mm-hmm. But more more impactful was, was the parents yeah. just saying thank you, you know, and – just seeing them, yeah. what they had to, to deal with. Yeah. And, you know, 
I had, you know, I mean, that song was a huge success for us. It's just all about like this high moment of like, all this stuff's happening. Woo. All this stuff. Woo. You know, and, you know, and to me, uh, I always thought that the song was, was a great song, but I didn't put a lot of, it's not like the deepest song in the world. I'm the first to say it, Mm -hmm. but it was for them, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was just like, yeah. A, a real humbling reminder to to just shut up and stop complaining, stop looking outwards, and to realize that what you do has an impact mm. and that, you know, it can affect people. And so for this new record, whether I fully was conscious of it or, of it or not, in these times that I just feel like I can't even look at the news anymore, mm wanted to put these messages of positivity out there or acknowledgement, you know. Uh, that's so cool. Anxiety, depression, but how can that's I do awesome. it in a way that still makes you want to dance, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a great answer. I like that. <laughs> so brilliant. Our final question. Oh, we have a final question. The most important. She's like, God, I got to get out of here. No, I just didn't know. I got this guy going like, hey, we got this many seconds left. Um, our final question. The most important one. Who can you share with us, an up-and-coming band or artist? Who do you champion? Who have you been listening to that we should know about? Who that you should know about? Yeah, that maybe people out there that are listening have never heard of, but you know about them because you work with them or they're up-and-coming or they're friends of yours that you feel are really doing doing the work and writing great songs or Hmm. Um, or bands you just like that you're listening to now. We just love, you know, a short list, one or two. Yeah. Um, I worked with this kid, Max Frost. Uh, I helped A&R his record. And, you know, this kid is, like, gorgeous with a voice that, like, I would kill for because it sounds instantly like a recording when you when he sings. He plays every instrument he literally can't afford a band uh touring right now and so he goes out and does a one-man show where he takes loops like plays a drum loop loops it plays bass loops it and this guy does it all you know and you know by some people's standards he's like rolling in like the dream, you know, and by, I'm sure by his standards, he's not where he wants to be. He's not where I want for him to be, but he's, uh, he's so talented and he works his butt off. And, you know, like I said, getting to see this guy, like pull this one man show off with panache and just crush it every night. It's, it's really great to see this other girl Upsall. Uh, I got to work with her and she's another young artist who's trying to make her way, but, you know, uh, super talented, actually plays the instruments as opposed to like some other, like of these younger pop stars that don't even play or write their own music. You know, she's, she's in there. She can play instruments. She's a a great talent as well. Um, That's awesome. Did you say Max Frost was the first? Max Frost. And, and Upsall. Upsall. Great. We're going to check them out and make sure to honorable mention them on this episode nice. as your pick. Thank you for your time. Guys, thanks so much. Really fun nice interview. to sit across from you. Yeah. Nice to hang out, man.
Pound. Boosh. Booyakasha. Launch Left aims to create an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice, but a necessity. Launch Left begins with music, but its ultimate aim is to launch left-of-center artists in all creative fields. Everybody, 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 everybody